my maritime occupational crafts and skills and passion are far more than fitting two pieces of wood together. Far, far more. And it's the passion that's kept me in the trade and, and kept me building wood boats, restoring wood boats. That's Master Shipwright and 2016 National Heritage Fellow, Mike Vlahovic. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Mike Vlahovic has the sea in his blood. He's a third-generation commercial fisherman whose ancestors fished the Adriatic off the coast of Croatia. Born in Tacoma, Washington, Mike began fishing professionally when he was 15, loving the wooden working boats almost as much as he loved fishing. His fascination with the timber vessels grew, and in the off-season, he learned the craft of repairing and building these boats. He opened his own boatyard and gained a reputation as an exacting and talented builder. Mike's passion for wooden working boats went hand in hand with his appreciation of a working waterfront. To that end, he turned his attention to education and heritage tourism with the launch of the wooden fishing vessel, The Commencement, which Mike restored and turned into a floating classroom. Since then, Mike has been in the forefront of the effort to save historic wooden vessels. Aside from his continued work on the boats, He's trained more than 100 apprentices and consulted more than 22 heritage organizations. He was a founder of the Working Waterfront Museum and still conducts heritage and education tours on the commencement. And that's just his West Coast resume. Mike moved to Maryland's Chesapeake region in 2001 and rebuilt a fleet of sail-powered wooden oyster boats known as skipjacks and he created a thriving apprenticeship program in the bargain. He's trained 120 watermen to serve as heritage tour guides, and he formed the Coastal Heritage Alliance, which promotes the restoration of historic working boats on both coasts. His job, as he sees it, is to keep both the craft and the culture of the working waterfront alive and bring them to the next generation. And for his work, he's received awards from both Washington State and Maryland. And now, Mike Vlahovic has been named a 2016 NEA National Heritage Fellow. It's our nation's highest honor in folk and traditional arts. I spoke to him over the summer at his home in Maryland's Eastern Shore and wondered if he knew early on that working on the water was what he wanted. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think I loved it before I even went because my... Uh, my brother, my older brother. I remember seeing him off early in the morning when he left with my grandfather for Alaska to go fishing. And I was still too young to go. But before I was hired as a crew member, um, I did go out with my grandfather, not to Alaska, but closer to home. And I watched the whole operation. Can you describe what it is that you loved about it? What, what spoke to you so deeply? The sea, the sea life. It was exciting. It was an adventure. And I loved the old wood boats. Um, <laughs> the boat that my grandfather was using when I went, it wasn't the one he owned. He, he had turned the family boat over to his two sons, so my, my, my uncles. But grandfather still wanted to run a boat, so he basically leased one from a cannery, and it was very rotten. And you know, I was too young to do any work, so he would sit me up on the bow of the boat to stay out of the way of all the fishing gear and, and everything. You know, I'd get kind of bored, and I remember just 
picking away at the rot. <laughs> I mean, just <laughs> like it was something to do. <laughs> Little did I know that that would be something I would do for the rest of my life, pick away at rotten wood boats. Uh, I, I liked the camaraderie. It, it was around the galley table, kitchen in the boat, that I learned about my heritage. So at the end of the day, you know, you'd have a big meal, the older guys would have a drink or two, and that's when I would hear the stories of the old country. In the beginning, all, all the crew, except for me, and maybe a couple of my cousins, they were all immigrants. And they, all from Croatia? Yeah, and, and a lot of times they would speak in their native tongue, but a lot of times it was just sort of broken English, kind of a mixture of Croatian and English, quite hilarious, really. <laughs> so, that, I mean, that was really special, too. I didn't speak Croatian. My parents spoke it fluently. Okay, well, my parents didn't want their children to be viewed as, as immigrants. You know, today, you know, I think parents would be proud of the fact that their children spoke their native tongue. So I never learned it, but I was around it on the fishing boats. So it was special. And being with a bunch of old men, because, I mean, that's when I became a man myself, I guess. Again, because they expected me to do a man's work on the boat. And if it got rough and I got seasick, too bad. Nobody babied me, and nor did I look for that. But, you know, looking back on it now, it was really instrumental in who I became. And, and actually, when my children, my, my son and my three daughters, were the same age as I was when I was introduced to the sea, I wanted that for them so much because it, it was so valuable for me. Not to go too far off track, but I'm fascinated yeah. by the fact that you were in a seminary, the Jesuits. Well, yeah, I mean, I uh, went to parochial schools my whole whole life, a couple of years of Jesuit college, and and then Jesuit novitiate. And I wanted to study to be a priest. I, I always wanted to. That's an earlier memory than fishing. Uh, a lot of that was because of my father. Dad was extremely religious, was really into the rituals, and was very devout and very generous, very charitable, you know, did a lot of social work himself. So that, I'm sure that influenced me. But I, I you know, I didn't stay in it long. Um, it was only a year, but a very uh, influential year because it was part of their spiritual training formation where you were almost like in a cloistered environment and intense, a good intense. I loved it. How did you get back to the sea? Well, I loved the sea as well because I had fished several seasons before I went to become a Jesuit. Part of our daily routine, and it was very regimented, part of the schedule was your morning meditation at sunrise. And in nice weather, I would take it outside. It was on a 900-acre farm in western Oregon, and uh, so I would I'd walk out in the farmland and do my meditation, and, <laughs> and, you, and, and it would end up at, at the cafeteria or the refectory, we called it, for, for breakfast. And <laughs> one spring morning, I was walking back for breakfast, and before I got there, I smelled the coffee. And immediately, the smell of that coffee just took me right back to the deck of the fishing boat. We would get up before dawn when we were fishing and have our coffee first and sit around the galley table and tell more stories. And it just came clear to me that I needed to go back with my people. It's not like I didn't want to be part of the church. It's just that I felt like I was ready. <laughs> I was ready to go do my thing with the fishermen. What is daily life like on a fishing boat? I know it's really hard work, but 
I have very little sense. You throw nets over, you get fish. I mean, how, yeah. how does it work? It's teamwork, and, and so that's really crucial that you're with a good team, and you, you don't always pick the team, I mean, unless you're the captain and make the decisions. So the personality part of it can be difficult, can be. When it's not, then that's a real high point. That's a real plus, just because of that companionship and that camaraderie and you know working hard together, making hopefully making money together, facing the storm together, enjoying the beautiful sunsets together. I started that 50 years ago. So even within my lifetime, things became more mechanized and, and therefore not quite as hard physically. More equipment, more hydraulic equipment meant fewer crew members, less physical backbreaking work, but it was always long hours and you always had sea conditions to, to deal with. And, uh, you know, fishermen are eternal optimists, which didn't always pan out very well. You'd go out with high hopes of making a lot of money and sometimes you'd come home with nothing. So that was hard, you know, hard on the family. It was a risk and yet you're called to it. You don't see it as a job. It's not a job, you know, it's a lifestyle and that's what really draws you, what, what drew me in. I like the seasonal part of it, so I very seldom fished year-round. You know, I liked working hard for four or five months. You know, then I was tired of it. I was ready to do something else. And yet again, come spring, you know, you're, you're ready to get out of the house and, and get away with the guys and, and experience nature and, the, and then, you know, kind of the, the risk and the gambling. Um, and once I became a captain, which didn't happen until um, the early 1990s, and that was a whole different situation than being a crew member. So it was another responsibility, but another piece of excitement. You know, you're the, you're the captain. You know, people called you the captain, and they respected you as the captain. And, and all of a sudden, you were part of the captain's club. So when you were, all the boats were tied up together, you know, the captains would sort of hang out together. They were sort of the upper echelon, <laughs> if you will. That was pretty thrilling. And were you going out on wooden boats? Was the boat you captain a wooden boat? Always, always wooden boats, yeah. And you loved them right from the get-go. Oh, yeah. I mean, see, I, I fished five or six years before I started repairing and building and restoring. So, yeah, I was already in love with wooden boats before I really knew how they were constructed. But, but I mean, that's how, how I kind of learned how they were constructed, because you would... You'd be laying in your punk at night, maybe in rough seas, and the deck beams are like right here. You know, it's kind of claustrophobic. It's, but I would look and see, you know, how did they fit all these pieces together? I mean, it's like a huge wooden puzzle. It's like you, you have to be an engineer. Yeah, and, and a pretty good craftsperson to make all these things yeah, fit. both, yeah. And so, I mean, that, that in, intrigued me from day one. Wow, that's, that would be so neat to be able to do that. How did you learn how to build and repair boats well, again, as a teenager, as a crew member on a boat, you were also responsible to do minor maintenance and painting to get the boat ready for the season. So, I, I mean, I learned a little bit then, but, but that wasn't major work. If there was major work to do, you would go to the shipyard with the captain, and the shipyard would put qualified people on it. So I would watch them. You know, I, I remember becoming intrigued with ship's caulking. So where you drive the cotton and oakum in between the seams, in between the planks on a wooden hull to keep it watertight and to actually stiffen up the structure because you drive it in really hard. I remember just 
watching this old guy do it. And, and I love the rhythm. It makes a ringing sound. That intrigued me. So I, I, you know, I learned a lot just through observation, um, and it certainly got my curiosity up. But I did then decide to go to a trade school. So I, I went to a technical college, and I learned under a fellow by the name of, of Joe Trumbly, and he learned his boat building from, from Croatians in Tacoma. So even though he was not Croatian, in fact, he was a Osage Indian, but again, had, had learned under the Croatian family boat builders in, in the Pacific Northwest. So the skills he was teaching me really were from Croatians. Um, and most of these Croatians were immigrants. And so they actually brought this, this skill with, with them. And now I am bringing that skill back to Croatia. Because it, it was lost in Croatia. They are struggling with that now. I mean, it's just like America's lost a lot of it, too. But anyway, that's another story. Your, your boat building and repair, con- you had 24 craftspeople working for you. That, that's, that, that was, seems pretty big to that me. That was kind of the heyday. And it, 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 it happened within a year's time. I was just a traveling single contractor working out of the back of a pickup truck. And then took a chance, had some projects that needed a facility, and then got the facility and only had one employee. And then my reputation grew, and, you know, within a year, year and a half, we had a big crew. And, you know, I mean, it wasn't a a huge successful business financially, but it was still sort of a big deal. And I I made some money and used that to uh, invest in the founding of a museum in Tacoma, the Working Waterfront Museum and then was also the originator of a, of a maritime festival in Tacoma. So I, I gave back. I wanted to give back. I used that money to buy my own fishing boat, the commencement. When you had your own company, did you only work on working boats? or did were... Primarily, actually. Once, once, I I had a, once I had a big crew like that, then yeah, I had to branch out a little bit, and we did some work on yachts, but you know, my heart was not in it. I, I like to work for what I call working people because um, as much as I love working on boats, and I think I'm pretty fair at it, there's certainly craftspeople that are, are better than I am, but I'm not sure there are any that are as passionate as I am and as dedicated to it. And, and, but what really drives me is the culture, the working waterfront culture. Now, you put together, as you said, a museum where we're still on the West Coast, and yeah. you rebuilt the commencement, which was a wooden salmon boat. Yeah, right, right. And you turned it into a boat whose purpose was to educate people. Correct. Tell me what your thinking was about the museum and about the commencement. You talk about that loss of heritage. Yep. What yep. was being lost? What was happening Well, to you could see it physically. Fishing? You could see the physical changes within my hometown, Tacoma, Washington. So for a variety of reasons, fishing was, was in decline. That was sad in a way, but I understood that. I'm an environmentalist. I, I mean, I, I was never a very good fisherman. I didn't have the killer instinct. I, I was never a, aggressive enough. And, and, you know, some people might think that an image of fishing, like the old man in the sea where you're out there by yourself and, you know, you're pitted against the elements. And No, you're pitted against your neighbor. If you don't put your net in front of him, he's going to put it in front of you and take your fish. So it, it was very competitive. But the waterfront where the fishing boats tied up had at one time several shipyards and fishing boats. So it was industrial. It was working waterfront. And there were some environmental 
issues over the years, different toxins and stuff like that. And, 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 and so back in the, you know, back in the seventies and eighties, it became important that that waterway got cleaned up and shipyards started to shut down. It became more difficult for fishing boats to be there. Anyway, what I saw is that the powers, the decision makers in town really wanted the working waterfront to go away. So I saw the changes coming and um, I said, well, I need to do something else. You know, instead of fighting it, maybe I need to somehow influence this. And so that was the motivation behind the museum. I said, well, okay, you know, let's, let's try to save pieces of the working waterfront in a museum where these skills will still be maintained. I mean, that's what spurs me on. And that's what got me into heritage tourism and education on the boat. I said, well, okay. And that's what Some, you did with the commencement. Right. Somehow I need to impact the thinking of people in a good way. There's no way I'm going to impact thousands of people. So uh, my approach is going to be to try to be transformative, to provide transformative experiences for a few people. And that's what I've done with apprentices. And that's what I do with the people that come to Alaska with me and on the boat. And many have said, you know, after the trip that it was life changing for them. What do they see? What, what do you want them to learn? Well, we visit working waterfront sites, we go to the wilderness, we talk about the cultural change in British Columbia. It's really learning about human impact on resources and on the environment. I mean, this is, you know, this is, this is where they collide or where there's this exchange. And I, I mean, it shows us that we are connected. And, and, and if that's all they learn, that's really great, that our, that our actions in the environment and our actions in regards to natural resources makes a difference, <laughs> a huge difference. Tell me how you got to Maryland. Well, I read the book Chesapeake, Missioner's book Chesapeake in the late 70s. And even though I was doing wood boats back in Washington, the West Coast has always modernized quicker than the East Coast. I mean, they're not as traditional as the East Coast. And so boat designs and boat construction materials were changing. I could see it coming, more fiberglass, more aluminum boats. and. So reading a book like the Chesapeake got me really interested in traditional fishing methods and traditional boat building methods. So I, I started to read and pay more attention to the current Chesapeake culture of the watermen and saw that they still were um, appreciative of wood boats and wood boat craftspeople. So I wanted to go. I wanted to come here. So I started looking for a job in National Fisherman magazine. And after a couple of years, I found a help wanted ad to be the head carpenter at uh, a little uh, shipyard in Reedville, Virginia. And came out, worked there a couple weeks, got to know the people and took the job. And I, I moved the family out in the early 80s. We came out for four years and lived in Reedville right next to the Menhaden plant and worked at a place called Jennings Boatyard, which was originally owned by the Rice Brothers. It was the Rice Shipyard, which built several skipjacks, of which I had no idea. I mean, I didn't. I had heard of a skipjack, but knew nothing about them. What is a skipjack? A skipjack are, are, the, are the vessels that dredge oysters in the Chesapeake Bay under sail power. The entire fleet is, you know, is considered historic by the National Trust for Historic Preservation and just steeped in history and, and maritime tradition in America. So I ran that yard. They asked me to design and build Chesapeake dead rise boats for the blue crab fisheries. And it's where I worked on my very first skipjack, the Sigsby. But it was a long way from home. We had three young children and um, my wife didn't have a support system there from family. 
So we we decided to go back. So I mean, that was the first move, four years in, in Virginia. The friends I had made from Smith Island and Tangier Island, because uh, primarily they were the watermen that I, uh, whose boats I worked on. I remained close friends with them, and on occasion they would need my help, and they would fly me out. So then I kind of became a traveling contractor, so I had an opportunity to, uh, to visit Tangier and Smith Island and work on boats. One boat I built was for a waterman by the name of Lonnie Moore. And his boat gave me a great reputation in Maryland. And it was mainly that Lonnie had a great reputation as a very rugged, tough fisherman. And he would take the boat out in the worst weather. But the boat held up. And so anyway, that got well known because of Lonnie and the boat. But Lonnie quit fishing and became a staff member for the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Became an educator for them. So he quit harvesting. And I helped him convert his boat over to carry passengers. So he went from harvesting into education work with his boat. And taking people out and talking about the Chesapeake and... The waterman's culture and, and the environment. the history of fishing in the area yeah, and yeah. oystering. And so since he was on staff at the Bay Foundation, when the Bay Foundation decided to buy a skipjack for their education program, they bought the Stanley Norman. But the Stanley Norman needed a lot of work, and so Lonnie recommended me. So then that was like a four-month job that I came out with. I brought my daughter Emily with me, and did that job and the job actually required more but they didn't have enough money so we did the bottom and we were going to wait to do the top of the boat later I mean the boat still functioned so a few years after that they called me back and uh, that was in the year 2000 and so now the boat was totally rebuilt and the Bay Foundation called the Baltimore Sun and got a lot of you know coverage for it and it was you know spread my name all over the paper and Great photos. I read it. <laughs> okay. So anyway, but before I left town, I mean, I was going to go back to Washington. It's, it was when the state of Maryland decided to come up with uh, the Skipjack Restoration Program, and they, they were going to host that at the Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum here in St. Michael's. And they were looking for a project manager, and they offered me a job, and I, and I took it. I flew back home, and we sold the house, and within a month... We were driving cross-country again as a family. How many skipjacks were in Maryland at that time? There were 13 that qualified for the program. 13. To qualify, you needed to have been active. Couldn't, like, pull a skipjack out of the marsh and say, well, I want mine restored. Right. You had to be a fisherman. Right. Right, yes. And because I had seen the government attitude on the West Coast as, you know, anti-working waterfront, when I saw in Maryland, we use taxpayer money to restore work boats to help sustain a culture. I said, I got to do this. I mean, this was like got my name all over it. I mean, I had to do this. Yes, I had dabbled in museum work prior, but, but this was like jumping in with both feet. And you began the Coastal Heritage Alliance. I did that three years after. In 2003, I founded it, but I stayed at the museum for about four years. And What was your goal with that? Well, the mission of Coastal Heritage Alliance remains the same, although our activities have you know, expanded. But it was to, to save the vessels, skills, and stories of commercial fishing families within North America. And I trained 120 Maryland watermen, introduced 120 Maryland watermen to heritage tourism over a five-year period. That was one of our organization projects. That was the Waterman Heritage Tourism Training Program? That's correct. 
And so that was in Maryland and, and a couple of courses in Virginia. And I, I did that because I saw the threat of tourism and the development that it brought as possibly displacing this working waterfront that I loved. So if you can't beat them, you join them. And so I said, all right, well, let me try to develop a form of tourism where the working waterfront is actually involved and therefore has an opportunity to generate some resources from it and actually influence its direction. So I got into community-based tourism. Did you go around interviewing fishermen to collect their stories? Did you have people well, going out Well, I do that collect- now. We didn't do that in the beginning. Restoration work and training of apprentices really, really took center stage. And also, I had not been schooled at all in interviews. Okay, I mean, so that was foreign to me. However, I always thought it was very important. Um, but that did come later. So, you know, video, still photography, uh, audio. I mean, I started to learn about it and have a little more confidence in it because I went back to school because I didn't have a degree. And uh, You went to Goucher. I went to Goucher and because my friend Rory Turner started a program at Goucher called Cultural Sustainability. I said, well, you know, that's kind of what I'm trying to do in the organization. And, and I've got no professional academic background at all. So I thought this would be great for me, but I didn't have an undergrad degree. And this was a graduate program. But so I said, well, can I just audit it or something? I said, I don't care about the piece of paper. They were reluctant to let me, but they said, okay, well, we'll try you for one semester. We'll see what your grades are. Well, straight A's. (laughs) But after one semester, I realized, well, this is really expensive, and this is hard work. And I think I want that piece of paper, after all. (laughs) So I asked for that, and they said, well, we can't do that. You don't have an undergrad degree. Well, Rory and several other people went to bat for me and actually changed college policy that they would consider life experience valid criteria to accept grad students. Lo and behold, they changed policy, and, and I got accepted. I'm the first one in 134 years that ever got accepted into Goucher Grad School without an undergrad degree. <laughs> and so I am now doing my thesis. I've actually finished all my courses, do my defense. And you're writing your thesis? Well, that was, uh, that was part of my trip to Croatia. That was my field study. What is, yeah, what is your thesis? It's the intersection of commercial fishing uh, culture and, uh, and tourism. I think I'm going to do sort of a comparison of what I saw happening there compared to what I've experienced in America. You've received other awards, and I'm thinking the Washington Governor's Heritage Award, which is very prestigious, and now a National Heritage Fellowship. What does getting the award say to you about the work that you've been doing? Well, it's, it's a huge pat on the back, and it's pretty special that it's recognized by other people. It's nice to be personally recognized, but it but it's also very nice that it seems to me that there's more um, attention given to these occupational crafts. I think in Maryland it's really changed. I mean, I've seen changes in, in my time in, in Maryland where the focus isn't just on the fine arts, that, you know, that more, more and more it's, it's into the crafts and the, the heritage work and, and uh, again, the occupational crafts. What do you think your dad and your grandfather would say about the work that you're doing? Well, I sure wish I, I wish they were around for me to hear them. Extremely proud. And my former trips to Croatia and my future trips, I mean, they're, they're just key on my mind. You know, they got a lot to do with why I do what I do, no doubt about it. 
That's Master Shipwright and 2016 National Heritage Fellow, Mike Vlahovich. You can see Mike and the other 2016 National Heritage Fellows on Friday, September 30th at the Lisner Auditorium in Washington, D.C. at the National Heritage Fellowship Concert. The curtain goes up at 8 p.m. It's free and open to the public. And if you can't make it to Washington, be sure to watch the live webcast. For more information about the concert and the webcast, go to arts.gov. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.